Father, uh, Acts 10 is before us, and the world is our mission, and we need to be reminded of how those two intersect. So would you help us today to get a view of your work um, in our lives and in our church, and then how that relates to a global vision, what it means to um, have our sights set on beyond just Indianapolis. So give us grace today to hear what it is that you're saying to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is the, the second of three weeks, three Sundays, that we spend talking about the subject of global missions. And the reason that we take this amount of time is because the need is that great, the Great Commission is that important, and if we're honest... Our passion for global evangelism tends to leak. It is very easy for us to get caught in just the normal everyday activity of life, living from one Sunday to the next and forgetting about the need to evangelize the world. It is an Achilles heel for the church and it always has been this way. So it's good to always be reminded of this. In in the course of church history, um, there have been many times when People have tried to remind the church of their need to have a global view, and yet sometimes that was not well received. For for instance, William Carey is considered the father of the modern-day missions movement, and in 1791, at a gathering of other ministry leaders, he presented his vision of reaching the people in what was called then the heathen land. And in the middle of that meeting, Carey was rebuked by a longtime friend and mentor when he said to him, Young man, when God is pleased to reach the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. One year later, Carey preached a message about expecting great things for God and attempting great things for God and launched this global missions movement. But at the time, Carey's message fell on deaf ears. D.L. Moody, not a global evangelist, but more of a United States evangelist. He had global um, opportunities, but primary focus was the United States. In the 1800s, he had all sorts of evangelistic campaigns, and some of them rather unconventional. And after one of those meetings, a woman came up to him and said, Dr. Moody, I am unimpressed with your methodologies, and I'm not sure that I really appreciate them. And he said, well, I'm not sure that I really appreciate my methodology, so what's your methodology in reaching the lost? And she said, well, actually, I don't. He said, well, then, I like the way that I'm doing it better better than the way that you're not doing it. (laughs) Point well taken. The point of those two stories is this, is that the church always has to be reminded about a global focus. If we don't remind ourselves regularly about the need and challenge ourselves about the opportunity to reach people with the gospel, we can easily fall into spiritual complacency. I feel it. I'm sure that you feel it. That's a negative way to say it. Let me state it positively. The need in our world is great. And the fact of the matter is, is that God is always creating divine opportunities. And we need to be sure that we not miss them. I hope you didn't miss the significance even of having Holly read our scripture today from a translation that we as a church were a part of and her family was a part of that and this beautiful divine opportunity moment that just even converged this morning as she's reading the scriptures for you. 
As well, at the end of the service, you're going to see another divinely ordained moment. It's important for us to be reminded that if this is indeed for that, then we all have a role. And today I want to challenge all of us to consider what our role is. And for some of you, that may look like changing your career path and leaving the United States. Others of you, it just means praying more intentionally it may mean joining a barnabas team and and being engaged in praying for specific people and specific needs it may mean that you use your gifts and abilities in a in a temporary foreign setting it may mean that you use your gifts and abilities to make a boatload of money and then give a boatload money away because translation work is expensive and it takes a lot of money to make that happen the fact of the matter is i just want you thinking about what's your role because all of us need to have some role And today I think Acts chapter 10 is a great way to challenge us in that regard. The story in Acts 10 is about Peter and Cornelius. And we have in this text an amazing gospel opportunity. Where we have Peter, who is a Jew, was a disciple of Jesus. He's received the Great Commission in Matthew 28 to go and to reach all nations. And then we have Cornelius, who is a Gentile, who is yet to hear the gospel. He's a Roman centurion. And so Acts chapter 10 is about the contrast between Peter, who's a Jew, and Cornelius, who's a Gentile, and God's sovereign plan to bring them together for the purpose of reaching Cornelius, and for that matter, spreading the gospel to the people who were called Gentiles. So today I want to just walk you through the story and then help you understand some things, I think, that relate to where we live and perhaps what God may be saying to you today. Let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 10. We see Cornelius' vision and the request that comes from him. Look at verse 1 of Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Now, Cornelius lived in the city of Caesarea. It was on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and it was built by uh, Herod the Great, and it was named after the Emperor Augustus. It was named Caesarea in honor of the Roman Empire, and Caesarea was an outpost for the Roman government. For instance, it's where the provincial governor of Judea would have lived. Remember Pontius Pilate and the story of Jesus? He was in Jerusalem at the time of Christ's crucifixion, but he wouldn't have lived there. No one would have lived in Jerusalem if you were a a Roman governor. No, he lived in the city of Caesarea. It was sort of the regional capital area, and because of that, it was filled with military officers. And this man, Cornelius, was one of those. He's part of the Italian cohort. He's a centurion, which means he gave oversight to at least 100 other soldiers. So he was a man of prominence, and he was also a man of wealth. Verse 2 tells us about his religious fervor. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So we learn some things, not only about his background as a Roman soldier in the city of Caesarea, but we also learn that he has a level of spiritual fervor. It sounds like he was a convert to Christ, but as I'll show you later, I don't believe that he was. Rather, the statements about Cornelius indicate that he is a moral man, a a God-fearing man. He was a religious man. And keep this in mind, we'll come back to it later. But now, for now, just note that he's a man who is religious, he's unconverted, and he's a Gentile. A man who is searching for the truth. 
Then, secondly, we see that he has a vision. Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, verse 4, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. That's as close as you can get to an address in the New Testament. That's like 555 Seaside Way, Joppa. So he he sends him to go there. Verse 7, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier, probably also a religious soldier, from among them who had attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So Cornelius has this vision. He sends for Peter. Now at the same time, Peter has a vision. Look at verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey, so understand the scene that's being set here. You've got from Caesarea, three people from the house of Cornelius who are making their way south to Joppa. And at the same time, as they're making their way, Peter is going up onto the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Verse 10, he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. So in this vision, there's this this sheet that comes all the way down. In verse 11, inside the sheet, or rather verse 12, in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. So all kinds. Verse 13, and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. What is Peter saying here? Well, you need to understand that a part of the Jewish tradition and part of what it meant to be Jewish was to obey all of the laws of the Jewish people. And and central to those laws were dietary restrictions. And, and these restrictions were not just about food. It was that this was God's way of making his people distinct. So all of the laws that God gave to Israel were laws that were meant to identify them as a special people. So if all of the people groups of the earth, and among all the, peoples of the uh, people groups of the earth, there's this one group of people, the Israelites, and they are a special people, and they have unusual laws and unusual requirements. And in fact, in the Old Testament economy, the way that you came to a relationship with the Creator, the way you came to a relationship with God, was, become, was by becoming Jewish. So as a Gentile, you had to become a Jew, which involved circumcision and involved all the dietary restrictions and all of the obedience to the law there there was no gentile um sort of old testament understanding of god it was that as a gentile you became a jew and so when peter is told to rise kill and eat he is in effect being told to do something that never in his lifetime has he ever ever done that's why he says by no means for i have never eaten anything that is common or unclean All of this is a setup, though, because the issue is not food, but food is the platform upon which God is going to make a very important point. Verse 15, and the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. That's the point. And the point is not just about food. It's also going to be more importantly about people. But right now, Peter doesn't understand this. Verse 16, this happened three times. The sheet came down, same thing happened three times. Remember, how many men are on their way from Caesarea to Joppa? Three. Probably that's why the the sheet came down three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Verse 17 tells us, Then Peter was perplexed 
by all of this. I'm sure he was perplexed because everything that Peter had known about what it meant to be Jewish was being challenged in this moment. Now it's not a coincidence that as Peter in verse 17 is being inwardly perplexed about what he has seen, that the men, verse 17 says, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask where whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. So just as Peter is thinking about the meaning of this dream, the, the three friends arrive and they call out, Simon, Peter, do you live here? Are you here? And none of this is happening by accident. Verse 19, and while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? At this point, Peter has no idea why these men are here. All he's heard is this vision, rise, kill, and eat. Don't call common what, what I have declared to be clean. Verse 22, and they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. So Peter has no idea at this point exactly what is going on. And he chooses to go with these men, connecting both his vision with this invitation that he has from Cornelius. Skip ahead now to verse 28. The story moves on and we have Peter at Cornelius' home. He enters into the home and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. So again, there's that whole Old Testament law thing and what it meant to be Jewish. And he he basically says, "I'm, I'm coming in here and you know that this is against the rules, so to speak. But notice what he says, But God has shown me that I should not call any person, note that, we'll come back to this later, note that I should not call any person common or unclean. So Peter's now made the connection. He's made the connection between the vision on the rooftop and the animals that God said kill and eat. Don't call what I have called um, clean common. Don't do that. And so Peter now has made the connection between that vision and what's in front of him in Cornelius's household. Verse 29, so when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. So then Cornelius goes through and explains to him in verses 30 through 33, the vision that took place. Then in verse 34, we we hear Peter present the gospel. And let's just read what he says. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, remember that verse, because we'll connect in a moment. Verse 35 and verse 28. It's a very important verse. And there's also some things in there I need you to understand. We'll come back to it after we read through this section. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging on a tree, 
But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is a great, beautiful summary of the gospel, but it is not just about the gospel. The point of Acts chapter 10 is the connection of the gospel to people who were formerly considered common or unclean. It is that now the gospel is being moved from just a Jewish community I mean, Jesus said to his disciples, don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. I've only come for the house of Israel. And now he's gone, and that is all changing. The gospel is to be taken to all peoples. They are to make disciples of all nations. The point of Acts chapter 10 is that the gospel is now to be brought to all people, regardless of their ethnicity or their background. The gospel was meant to go to people who were considered by some to be unreachable. That's important to remember when you look at verses 34 and 35. I told you we'd cover them, so go back, to, back up to those verses. When Peter says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That word acceptable doesn't mean that Cornelius was saved. It doesn't mean that Cornelius was already redeemed. He still needed to be redeemed he still needed to be saved let me give you four reasons why first the word acceptable does not mean justified in the new testament justified meaning justified means forgiven of your sins god cleanses you of your righteousness acceptable does not mean justified it means rather to be marked with favor to be treated kindly to be treated with divine pleasure it's used in second corinthians 6 and verse 2 for the way in which paul described now is the acceptable Now is the acceptable, that's the same word, the acceptable time of salvation. So it means a person who has been blessed, a person who has been graced or treated kindly. So Cornelius was being treated kindly by virtue of this vision, but he wasn't redeemed. Secondly, Peter, in Acts chapter 11, if you were to read ahead, he goes back um, to to Joppa and he he comes in contact with um, people who were um, involved in the Jewish faith and, and they heard that or he went up to jerusalem not to joppa when he goes to jerusalem these religious leaders get all over peter's case because he brought the gospel to the gentiles and in peter's explanation of why he went to them he tells them about cornelius's vision and peter says that cornelius heard that he needed to send for peter so that he would proclaim a message to him by which you will be saved so the angel said to cornelius you need to hear this message because this is the way that you will be saved so if he was already saved then he wouldn't have need to have heard this message the third reason is that the spiritual leaders in acts chapter 11 rejoice that god has now brought gentiles under the banner of repentance unto life So the whole point of Acts chapter 10 is something new is taking place. And further, the final reason why Cornelius was not a convert is found in verses 44 to 48. While Peter was still saying these things, this is back inside Cornelius' house, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out 
even on the Gentiles. So they saw the Holy Spirit being poured out on these Gentiles. So the question is, well, how do they see the Holy Spirit being poured out? Well, verse 46 answers that. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So they they saw the Spirit being poured out because they saw a, a sign that the Spirit had been poured out by virtue of them speaking in tongues. And therefore, Peter says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he's, obviously these people have the Holy Spirit. Look what's happening. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked for him to remain some day. So that's how the story ends. Now, by the way, just a little sidebar on the whole tongue-speaking thing. Some people think that because this happens in Acts chapter 10, that if you're really saved, then you need to speak in tongues. Or secondarily, that if you're really full of God, that you will then also uh, speak in tongues. Well, my view, and I have friends who don't necessarily see it the same way that I do, but my, my view on this is, is that the speaking in tongues element here is not normative in the Scriptures, nor is it normative for today. Is it possible? Sure. But it's not normative, and here's why. Because in Acts chapter 10, the issue is, can the gospel really come to the Gentiles? And so the tongue speaking was a validation that, yes, the tongues, uh, or the tongue speaking gave evidence that, yes, the gospel really had come to the Gentiles. And so the, the, the tongues piece was a confirmation that, indeed, a new work of God was, in fact, happening. And so it was a validation of the gospel, not some higher spiritual life or an expression of, of one's um, conversion. So tongues validated the initial and unusual movement of God. That's why I say today that they're not normative. Are they possible? Yes. But are they normative? My answer would be no. So all of that to say, what's the point? The point is is that Cornelius and his family were not genuinely converted until the moment that they heard the gospel. Now why is that important? Well, there's two implications of this that I want to drill into to have you realize and think about with me. In the first place, it's really good to be reminded that Cornelius, even though he was a good man, a devout man, even though he was a religious man, gave alms to the poor, and was renowned within the Jewish community, he still needed to hear the gospel. Why is that important? Because, church, we live in a family-oriented, Midwestern-valued, relatively conservative community, and while our Fair City is far from perfect. It's a good place to live. It's a good place to raise a family. And the fact of the matter is, is you can run into good, respectable, moral, and even spiritual people who are still lost and still need to hear the gospel. It's good to be reminded that just because the people in our neighborhoods or the people that you work with are really good people and they're really nice and they, they're really kind, the fact of the matter is you could be kind and really lost. You can give lots of money away and still not be genuinely converted. And you may be here today and be one of those kind of people. You, you've, you've done a lot of really great things in your life, but the fact of the matter is unless you have a relationship with Jesus, unless you have been moved from darkness to life with an encounter with Christ, you do not have genuine salvation. You don't have conversion. And the fact of the matter is, is that Cornelius needed to hear the gospel. And I just want to remind you that all the good people in your world, the people who are moral and don't seem like they have real deep spiritual needs. And in fact, isn't it easier to, to share Christ with somebody who's broken and messed up and they need help when someone has money and they've got it together and it seems like everything is working in their life? Those are the hard people that, that it's a challenge to be able to preach the gospel to those people. And Cornelius is a reminder that even those kind of people also need Christ. Second implication is this is there something really interesting and I think very compelling about what 
Peter says in verse 35. Go back. Explain the word acceptable. Verse 35 says this. I understand, this is actually verse 34 and then 35. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, every nation. Before, in verse 28, Peter said that he should call no person unclean. So he talks about individual people, no person unclean. But in verse 35, he says, in every nation... Everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So the idea is that Peter is talking in a, in a broader sense that word nation could also mean people group. And the point of what P- Peter is saying is this, that there are people within particular global people groups who are being prepared by God to seek him. I mean, what he's saying is this, is God knew where Cornelius was. He saw Cornelius is seeking him. And as a result, he sends Peter to Cornelius for the purpose of reaching Cornelius with the gospel. The implication is this, that God is calling people from every tribe and language and tongue, and Cornelius was such a man, and it was God's plan to reach him. Let me translate that into what you saw with the reading of God's word. In a country in the Caspian region, there were believers and there were non-believers. And God was calling more people to be believers in that Caspian nation. And as a result of money that we gave and as a result of a family in our church going, a regular businessman who said, you know what, I'm going to take my family and I'm going to move to this country. Even though I'm not fully trained, I'm going to go and just live among them. And even though we have a special needs child, we're going to go to a foreign setting. And what God did through them and through that translation work is connect the dots between him calling people from that nation and our resources and our people. And when you put those together, the spark of global missions happens and i'm telling you there are few things more glorious than that to know that god is in the process of calling people to himself from people groups and he's calling people to go reach them and then bringing together in a divine appointment the merger of those individuals those lives together and the question that i want you to think about today is this all around the world god is still drawing people to himself and all around the world he's calling people out and at the same time he's calling people here from our church we're calling financial resources or calling you to pray in order to connect the dots between the people who god is calling and the people who are to go and reach them and that is the thing of divine appointments that are is so beautiful and so glorious to me for some of you who need to think very carefully, very deeply about what all of this means. God is on a sovereign mission to reach people, and we are an essential part of that mission. And God wants to connect those who are seeking him with those who possess the good news. God is on a mission to reach the world, and his means by which he does that is through the church. So part of our role during these weeks is to remind ourselves about this mission so that we can look differently at our lives. So let me, let me ask you a few questions. Why has God placed you in your neighborhood? Why has he placed you in your job, in your career path? Why has he placed you in proximity to the people around you on a daily basis? 
Do, do, do you see that those things aren't by mistake? And it may be that God is bringing someone across your path who he's in the process of calling to himself and you're supposed to be the vehicle by which that person has come to understand the beauty of the gospel. You are not here just to live a safe, comfortable, normal American life. God has us on a mission for the purpose of reaching people and where you are placed is your individual little mission field. I just don't want you to miss the Corneliuses that God wants you to reach. Those conversations, those relationships, they matter that we are in the world to be on mission. Some of you have extraordinary gifts, and those gifts can be well used in a setting here in the United States. Others of you need to feel the call of God to a a foreign setting. Some of you have unbelievable business skills, and Nate is creating an opportunity for, for you to be able to think about how to use those business skills in a foreign setting to be able to be part of a of a church planting movement in an area where we couldn't get people in but you can get in because of your business because others of you have unbelievable ability to make money everything you touch turns to gold And, and what i want you to do is instead of saying wonderful so let's just build a bigger house and have a bigger retirement have more savings and more 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 instead for you to use those skills and i want you to i want you to be loaded beyond measure and then i want you to give as much money away as you possibly can Because listen to me, translations are expensive and missions is costly. Unreached peoples are hard to get to, they're expensive to reach, and we need more money. So you ought to look at your business and say, I want to make as much possible, and then I'm committed. I'm going to give as much money as I possibly can away. Your role may be that. If you're a teenager high school student, college student, you need to maybe feel the the opportunity that what what does God want to do with your life? What's the dream? What is it that God has in store for you? It may be that even like today is part of God's mission in calling you to something beyond what you would have thought of prior to even a day like today. Why has God brought you to this church with all of its focus on unreached peoples? I said this in first service. I'm going to say it in every single one. Nate is one of the best missiologists I've ever met. And I I mean that in all genuineness. This isn't flattery. This is serious. There are very few stateside missions pastors who have actually been missionaries. Crazy, isn't it? But that's the way it happens. Usually, missions gets assigned to someone who's got a little bit of room in their, their, their administrative plate. And here we have a man who's been on the field, who speaks Urdu, who understands what it's like to reach unreached peoples. And he is here at your disposal with vision trips and Barnabas groups and gym nights and all of the things. And my question to you is, why in the world wouldn't you take advantage of that? In fact, as your pastor, I would tell you, you, you will stand before God and have to give an account. If you don't have a global vision, it isn't because of a lack of commitment on our part. It's because of something's not right inside your soul. And you have to give an account for the fact that you lived in an environment with a church that has more to offer you in missions. We try to give more money away than, we, than, 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 than most churches. And we do all of that because we believe that missions is that important. And I want you to catch a vision for the beauty of what it means to be connected between Cornelius and your wife. And that doesn't mean that everybody has to go. Some of you could, many of you should. But it does mean that some way and somehow you need to be connected to the divine appointment of what God has in store for you as it relates to global missions. All I'm asking you today to do is to think about the connection between God's mission and your mission ask yourself so what's my role in this and i hope you know what it is if you don't today just begin thinking god what's my role what should i do you can't do everything but just do one thing 
And don't let the overwhelming sense of all that you could do, just throw up your hands and say, I can't do it, it's just too much. No, no, you just do one thing and do it really well. So there's something beautiful about knowing that Cornelius needed the gospel and knowing that Peter was going to bring it to him. And I just want for you to be able to realize that God has a mission. He wants to reach the world. And the means for him to do that is the church. The means is you and me. Now there are some barriers to this. And let me just give you a few. Some things that that stand in the way from our ability to accomplish this mission. Let me give you five of them. In the first place, there is a theology barrier. There are some people in their extreme views of God's sovereignty or their extreme views of human responsibility sit on the sideline with missions. In the case of divine sovereignty, they just throw up their hands and say, well, God can reach them. If he's all that powerful, he can do it. He can do it without me. And certainly he could, but he doesn't want to. And that is an overbaked understanding of God's sovereignty. God works, but he works through us. On the other hand, there's this perspective of human responsibility or somehow that if if those who are seeking him, if they're seeking him genuinely, eventually they're going to find him. But the reality is they won't find him unless somebody goes and talks to them about the gospel. And so sometimes our theology can be a barrier. Here's another barrier. Let's be honest. Prejudice, racism can be a barrier. It's sad but true. But racism can enter into this equation. This was part of the problem in the early church. It's still part of the problem. The gospel can be hindered because people believe that certain people are unreachable. And they believe that the gospel won't be received because of their culture, because of their background, or because of their past. There's people around you who you believe this about. You would never say it out loud, but the fact of the matter is when you see them, you think that they're not going to receive the gospel. Look at them. And that's so wrong. And yet we see that also when we go in a foreign mission setting. One of the reasons why I would just compel you to take a vision trip is because it will blow your racial categories out of the water and help you to see that people who speak a different language, who look entirely different, and who do Christianity similarly but very different in its expression, they love Jesus just as much as you do. That Jesus doesn't look like you. And as a result, the gospel can't be brought to just people like you. Third, The problem that we all feel is a matter of self-centeredness. Having a gospel mindset means that you have to look beyond yourself, your needs, and your personal fulfillment. Meaning it's very, very easy to be so over-focused on ourselves, filling our schedule, filling our lives with so many great things. And I get it. We're in that zone. Our family calendar is crazy. And you can just go through life one day after another, after another, after another, and live a week, and then a month, and then a year, and then five years without really thinking about the fact that there's a world that needs to hear the gospel. We're just trying to live to next week, and we got to pull ourselves out of that and realize we are not here just to survive. We are here to reach the world. That's why we're here. Approval is another barrier. It takes courage to share Christ with somebody You have to give up what they think of you, a fear of what others will think of you, a fear of what people, when you share Christ with them, what they will think of you, a fear of what people, your friends will think of you. That's what happened to Peter in Acts chapter 11. He was accosted by spiritual leaders when they heard about his visit to Cornelius. So reaching out requires creativity and it involves some level of risk and you will have to step outside of your comfort zone. God's mission doesn't involve the comfort zone. 
In fact, as a friend of mine says, the comfort zone is the spiritual danger zone. And finally, another barrier is certainty. If you have to know how everything is going to turn out, you will never do anything for the cause of Christ in regards to global evangelism. Peter had to leave and follow, not knowing exactly what was going to turn up at the end. So if you wait for the opportunity or the conversation to be safe, if you wait for it to be secure, if you wait for it to be certain, I'm sure that they're open. I'm sure that they'll receive this. I'm sure that this will work out. I'm sure that this will all be okay. You will never, ever do it because it won't ever be that certain. God's mission always involves risk, but the crazy thing is even though it involves risk, it's always safe. So I share all of these things with you so that you can see the contrast between the amazing opportunity that stood before Peter and all of the reasons why it would have been easy for him not to go with Cornelius' men. There were all kinds of reasons. He probably was still hungry, right? He had all sorts of spiritual tradition. This doesn't fit my box. He probably had lots of things to do. I don't have time to go three days up to Caesarea. Who knows what people are going to say if I go there and, 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 and preach the gospel to you guys. This doesn't really fit the bill. He had so many reasons not to go. And those are the same reasons why William Carey was told to sit down and be quiet. The same reasons why D.L. Moody was told, don't be so aggressive in your evangelism. And I just want to invite you today to dream big and to think widely and to say, God, what in the world is my role? And what is it that you're calling me to do? So what is your role as it relates to reaching the nations? There's so many reasons why you and I could sit through another Missions Emphasis Month and remain unmoved and unchanged. But my prayer today is that you will not do that. My hope is that in some way you'll be motivated to see your life, your gifts, and the opportunities that stand in front of you through a different lens that you would say, God, would you help me to seize divine appointments that you bring? Look right around you. Look in your neighborhood. Look in our city. Look in our nation, look around the world, and then realize that this church exists not just to help you grow spiritually. We exist for that reason, but we want to ignite a passion in you to follow Jesus so that you can go and light other people to be passionate about Jesus. You are not designed, God never designed you to be the end game. You are to be the conduit of his mercy and his grace. And so therefore, I want you to pray with me. God, would you open a door? And when you do, would you open my mouth? And hope, Lord, would you then open their hearts? Now in a moment, we're going to invite you to pray about something, and we're going to give you a very clear illustration of this. So don't, don't check out when I pray, okay? So let's pray. Father, help us now to respond to you and what it is that you're saying by your word through Acts chapter 10. Give us a big vision of what it means to reach the nations, to reach our nation, to reach our community, and to use our church as a sending ministry to launch people, to connect them between your desire to reach people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and our yearning to see that happen. So, Lord, help us to know what it is that you're saying today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.